Hi, this is J. Michael Straczynski, and you are listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Well, greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to another episode of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. It's episode 177. I'm your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I am joined by... Some would say the best gosh darn coast out there. And his name, his name is Mr. Bob Lucius. Oh, Bob. Knock, knock. Uh, Who's there, Rick? John. John who? John Waller Sewell is our guest today, and he's (laughs) going to be joining us a little bit later. Uh, Glad you asked. (laughs) Well, I am excited and thrilled to hear that, Rick. Yeah. We haven't had John on in a while. Uh, he, he's done a voice here or there mm-hmm. and called in. So it'd be nice to have him back. Yeah. Is this an audition? It is. Uh, okay. I, I I got a few complaints after last week's uh, uh, episode uh, oh, with yeah. all your uh, reading and uh, your, your uh, I guess, different voices, which yeah. were all the same voice. All the same. All the same. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually, John... John called me up right away and said, "Hey, uh, hey, man, you uh, <laughs> that last episode, ah, uh, ah, uh, you know I'm free, right? <laughs> well, not free, but reasonable. Yes, yeah. Well, time to compete. Yeah. Well, I know, Bob. Yeah. You're on the show because you are free." So yeah, that yeah, that is <laughs> anything else would be uh, a, a, a pay raise. Right. Um, how's your week going, Bob? Woo! It's been a big week, Rick. Uh, gosh, so much going on. So much going on. Um, had a had a endoscopy, which was fun. Again? Uh, yeah, I had another. Well, you one. can't get enough of those things. You know, for, when you have one, you really can't quit it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Like it's, an just, uh, it's a real joy. Uh, You're so, like, uh, Doc, uh, something's. Uh, <laughs> can I come in? Yeah. And and uh, and and my son is in a basketball championship this week, so it's 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 a banner week for me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. How many you get? You got the breakaway pants. Oh, you break. <laughs> I got my big foam fingers. I have that. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 doctor I did get the end. He gave me that. He gave me the foam fingers after I got. My I don't want to hear about yeah. what the doctor did with his finger. <laughs> just souvenir. I'm so. just hoping you were. This was your unconscious part, right? <laughs> well, you know, they call it uh, semi-unconscious. So <laughs> don't I want to hear about anything semi-anything. <laughs> you just keep that to yourself. Uh, so how about your week, Rick? Oh, Bob, I'm doing great. If I was any better, they'd have to sedate me. Hmm. You don't believe me? I don't believe you. Yeah. Believe so you. here's the thing. So my daughter, she she's uh she's in um color guard. She's captain of of uh, the winter guard team, and you know they all the parents have to pitch in and and do stuff to help out. So yeah. uh, I I help out with the props because that is what uh, I am skilled for. Meaning I push things. Yeah. And so we were uh, we were in uh, Pennsylvania. And it was about 10 days ago and uh, very first heavy piece of uh, equipment coming down the ramp from the truck. And I'm there, you know, holding it so it doesn't slide down. Right. And I'm like, you know, 
uh, I pull something in my back. And then I spend the rest of the day pushing things around with a pulled back. And so, you know, a, a couple of days go by and I'm feeling better, feeling better. And then uh, Tuesday comes and we get like 10 inches of snow. So I go out there and it's the wet, heavy kind of snow. You wouldn't yeah. know because you live yeah. in Florida. Yeah, We have wet, heavy rain. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm shoveling the snow. Fine. No problems. You know what? I'm doing okay. And then uh, uh, a few days go by and Saturday comes and we get uh, another 10 inches of snow, but it's the light, fluffy kind. Bob. Oh, fluffy. Yeah. It's the easy kind. <laughs> I pulled really bad my back. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And, uh, and it was really bad. And then I was like, well, maybe the next day will be better. I wake up Sunday. No. Still the same. Uh, maybe Monday. Wake up Monday. No, still the same. Wake up Tuesday. No, still the same. So I went to my chiropractor uh, this afternoon. And uh, after like a 10-minute exam, he's like, it's not your spine. It, you, you, you strained the muscles, you know, in this area and everything. And then he went on to explain to me all the different things that I'm doing wrong, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm putting pressure on that area. And then, uh, oh, get this, Bob. I'm old. <laughs> uh, so uh, that had something to do with it. And then uh, he taped my back. So if you see me oh, sitting yeah. here funny, yeah. he taped an X on my lower yeah, back that, that to tape? keep it from like like holding it in place. So I, yeah. I know when I'm doing things because yeah. apparently I sit wrong. I stand up wrong. Uh -huh. I breathe wrong. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I have to I have. I have five decades worth of bad habits to uh, basically change or else yeah. this is going to keep happening. Right. You know what? I got to be honest with you, Rick. I, you lost me after the second snowstorm when you said fluffy, because all I could think about was the fluffy dog joke. <laughs> oh, the fluffy oh, dog joke. If only we had time for that joke again. Oh, but it's a two hour show. So yeah. 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 You know, it. Uh, <laughs> gosh, love that. I, joke. We have to, I got to remember what episode that was because it was in the it was in the after the credits uh, for people who stuck around to listen. Right. Because, you know, it is it's like a 10 minute joke. It is a 10 minute joke. Yes. <laughs> I love that you love that joke because most people I tell that joke to, they're just like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I find that joke, it ages like a fine wine. Right? It sometimes, really does. Like sometimes I'm just sitting on the couch watching, you know, the news or something. And I just uh -huh. burst out laughing because it like a depth charge comes <laughs> rumbling back to the surface. So. Uh, it's, it's really funny for the joke teller. That's all. That's all <laughs> I'm going to say. Uh, all right. Well, Bob, um, I I'm excited about, today's episode because um we're doing another version of recap uh which is uh, when we don't go through it panel by panel we don't act out what's going on in the comic we just we just give our synopsis and then uh we discuss the comics and because there, there's we're going through six issues here bob it is the current captain america volume which is volume 11 uh from 2023 Issues one through six, which six just recently came out. So this goes into early 2024, uh, written by J. Michael Straczynski. And uh, I 
I thought it'd be great, you know, because J. Michael Straczynski, people people referred him as JMS. I figured, why not have JWS on, you know, because it's like a, it's like an upside down M, right? Okay. And that, well, that, that was that was the reason. That's the whole reason why I invited John. <laughs> I like. Well, okay, it makes you know what it all makes sense. I, yeah. Again, it's like that that sunshine. What is it sunshine in New York? You know the whole. The way your mind works, I just need, mm. I need like thumbtacks and yarn to just put it all together. I mean, come on, JMS, JWS. Yeah, I like it. I, like I it. actually spent some time trying to, for my hello for you, because, you know, it was kind of lame. Uh, I was trying to come up with like bizarro type of quote, right? Because JWS isn't quite bizarro of JMS. And, and then I thought it was a bit of a stretch after I spent like eight minutes <laughs> looking at bizarro quotes. And then I, you know, I was pretty sure no one would get it. I, I thought we were having him on just because he's supremely talented and funny. No, no, I have John Waller Sewell on the show. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to confuse you. It, yeah, uh, but uh, you know what? Let's get him out of the the green room, right? He, probably all those brown M and M's are gone by now. So let's 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 invite John into the show. All right, let's do it. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Um, should I be concerned about the fact there's this weird writing all over the green room? It's like all on the walls <laughs> and ceiling. The... I, it was, I couldn't read it. It was weird. It was weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe oh. strange. Yeah. Mm, oh, nice. I see who he's doing. I see who he did. Foreshadowing. Oh. oh. And by the way, my middle initial is M. Is it now? Yes. Oh, so it's uh, J W uh, J M W S. That's right. And we could just take the Waller out and just call you J M S. Sure. When I met him, I didn't have Waller in my name, so I was just J M S. Oh, we'll <laughs> we'll have to hear about this. I knew I knew coming back, you know, because for people who don't know, uh, John, uh, a friend of friend of mine who um, I met through my comic book store. And uh, John was a uh, fantastic customer, uh, long time in you know in the store. And I remember, uh, I was, I really I didn't know who JMS was at the time. And and this was, gosh, two thousand, let's say two thousand four to two thousand nine, two thousand three to two thousand nine. I think I had the store, and um, I really wasn't familiar with JMS. Uh, I never watched Babylon Five. And, uh, but I remember John talking about it and I remember him getting really excited when like JMS was, you know, came on to various comics and, uh, cause that impressed me. Like you, you, you were a, a big JMS fan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, rising stars is one of my favorite comic series pretty much of all time. So when he started doing some work for Marvel and, and did his run on Thor and fantastic four and all that stuff, I was I was all there for it. Yeah. Well, tell us about the time you met JMS. Oh, I, he happened to come to Dragon Con here in Atlanta. Uh, this was many years ago. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he would have absolutely no reason to remember me, but I did try to point out to him, hey, we have the same initials. And he's like, okay, great. Let me just sign the books. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's like, he's like, then why am I signing it? You just signed yeah, it. It's the same just, damn just thing. Scrabble your initials. Here, I'll show you how I do it. it... Next. <laughs> uh, uh, what did you get signed? Uh, Rising Stars. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, that's I, a creator-owned got... book. I mean, like that should have impressed him, as opposed to yeah. a license of another. You know. Well, I had some of the Fantastic Four books as well, but yeah. Mostly rising stars. That's cool. <laughs> Sorry, that's it. There's not no, a lot to it. Uh, you didn't go out for lunch after back to oh man. No. no. It wasn't like it wasn't like Justin Jordan where I took him out for dinner later. It, it it's just meet him, book sign, done. Yeah. Yeah. Bob's like, that, who's Justin Jordan? Who's Justin Jordan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Justin Jordan is a writer. He did a book called uh, The Strange Talent of Luther Strode, and then went on from there. He's worked for DC and stuff like that. Right. But back when he was just Luther Strode, you know, struggling to get by, I was like, hey, man, my buddy Seth and I will buy you dinner. Come on, let's go. Nice. John, so, didn't yeah. we have you and me have dinner with, uh, was it Brian Polito? You, Seth, and I all three had dinner with Brian Polito, and then you abandoned us. <laughs> right before the check came? or <laughs> No, no. That was when you were working for a certain company. I don't know that I'm allowed to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, we you were... don't want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But you were working for a certain company, and you actually had to leave and go take care of a few other things. But part of your company responsibilities is you were supposed to entertain Mr. Polito. So you're like, well, I got two different things I'm supposed to be doing at the same time. Hey, guys, why don't you entertain Brian Polito? <laughs> wow. So... We was had a he great time. He was entertained. I hope he was. Seth and I were highly entertained. We got an education <laughs> about the comics industry. I bet. Yeah. 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 He he he's been around a long time. Yeah. We, we actually had him on the on the show here. He on episode sixty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had him on the show because uh, he's a, a a big Captain America fan, and yes, then came is. on to talk about his his collection and everything like that. Brian's Brian's a cool guy. He is. All right, so uh, today with uh, with us doing recap, uh, I figured you know there's six issues here. Uh, we each take two issues, uh, and uh, kind of like uh, take turns, and then you know we will go through give uh, give our uh, I guess synopsis of what's going on in that particular issue and then you know we can interrupt each other and go like you know I had a thought about that you know or whatever like you know it's just three guys rapid cap having a good time talking about this first story arc by jms sound good a point of order aren't we recapping cap uh we are recapping cap isn't that what i said no you said wrapping cap oh well i said we were going to recap do you see what i have to put up with here john <laughs> are we I, I, I do cap? and and now i i understand the audition another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, well, let's get to issue number one. So this was, we were very excited when Alana Smith was on the show and she talked about JMS coming on and she she gave us a little foreshadowing. She said, you know, she was really excited in the fact that, you know, he was going to be talking uh, about uh, Steve Rogers, you know, back in, in the late 30s. You would get to see pre-serum Steve Rogers. That's a big check in my world. And then she also mentioned, um, you know, uh, she was surprised, like, you know, the, the humor, you know, that Steve's got a sense of humor and things like that. So these were these are things I was kind of like really excited for. And I was like really looking forward to seeing. Uh, so we'll see. Um, we'll see if we if you guys agree if the humor was there in this series. Uh, and then uh, I guess what we could do. Shall I read the solicitation, Bob, for for number one? You know, just out of tradition, I think you should. All right. What future awaits the man out of time? Decades ago, Steve Rogers changed the world forever. Now powerful and insidious forces were assembling to ensure he never does it again. Past, present, and future collide as the man out of time reckons with an existential threat determined to set the world on a darker path at any cost. Esteemed creators J. Michael Straczynski and Hezu Saiz Embark on an exhilarating new journey for Captain America. That sounds amazing. I know. It's almost like we should read it. Yeah. Um, so the uh, we, we talked a little bit about the creators. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski is the writer. Jesus Says is the penciler and inker. Uh, the colorist, Matt Hollingsworth. Letterer, Joe Caramanga. And then editor, Alana Smith. Uh, this had a release date of September 20th of 2023 and a cover date of November 2023. Uh, Bob, do you want to take us through the cover of number one? Sure, I'd be happy to, Rick. So it looks like we're, we're seeing a, uh, a typical street in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, it's nighttime or, you know, at uh, dusk at, at the very least. Uh, and we see a bunch of brown, brownstones lining the corners, uh, I mean, the, the, the sides of the street. And in the middle of the street, we see a pre-serum Steve Rogers. It looks to be around maybe 17 years old, maybe a little bit younger. Uh, and he's got a bloody nose and his shirt is torn and it's, it's pulled out. Uh, it's untucked from his pants and he's in a fighting pose. And you can tell that he is, uh, he's been in a scrap, but he is persistent and he's not giving up. And then looming above him uh, in the sky is uh, a modern day Captain America in his uniform with his shield uh, advanced in front of him and his left fist drawn back, uh, ready to strike and a look of determination on his face. And so what we're seeing here is a juxtaposition of, of, of course, pre-Serum Steve back in the 1930s, late 1930s, and uh, maybe a Steve Rogers of present day. Very nicely done, Bob. Uh, what did you guys think of this cover? I. I liked it um, because it, it it certainly demonstrates what you're going to get, right? You're going to get both 
uh, a pre-serum Steve, young Steve, and you're also going to get Captain America. So uh, it tells you that what you're seeing here in the flashbacks is more than just a quick flashback. Like there's going to be a big part of this story is going to be a young Steve. I agree. I thought the cover was iconic and um, just getting into even some of the smaller details, the font on the, the title logo and the, the little stripes there in between and all that, that it just adds to the aesthetic. And I was very excited for the whole telling the two different era story. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that logo. Right. Uh, so, so what we're seeing here between Captain and America. Now, Captain is slightly smaller font, and then America's bigger font. Um, but uh, in between, as you mentioned, is a red, white, and blue stripe. But, but Bob, that's more than just a stripe, right? Yeah, there's some there's some uh, captain's bars in there. So we're we're seeing a military rank insignia uh, in between Captain and America. Yeah, we haven't seen that before in all in, in the 85 years uh, in logo. It hasn't really been the, the whole the whole military port part has been kind of played down. Yeah. Yeah, surely. I mean, uh, it's always been a bit of an honorary rank, right, for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, with with I think mythos being the only exception to that. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to, to, to see that uh, mm. put in here on the on the logo. Um, don't know where they're going to go with that, but uh We'll have to see. Um, and then when you guys got your, there were m multiple covers that, that came just like, you know, uh, there's variants, but with a number one, especially on a major title like this, uh, they they go overboard and there's plenty of different covers. Which covers did you uh, personally get? I got the standard regular one. Yeah. I, yeah. I did get a, uh, and I, and I know I got a handful of other ones, but I just can't remember off the top of my head. I, I got, I got this one. I got the shiny one. Ooh. Right? Ooh. Or he's, he's uh, uh, para, para, parachuting, paratrooping yeah. down, right? And you see explosions around him and everything. Well, that's nice. I got that one. Yeah. It was hard to believe it was only $5.99. That's, that's a nice back not much too. more expensive than the regular yeah, I, I I know, and I was like, that should have been like a nine ninety nine cover. Seems like a deal. So that so that 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 was a, a major part of why I I feel like I'm getting a deal. <laughs> I can't afford not to get it at this price. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's get to the recap portion of this. All right. So I actually went to MarvelFandom.com because they did an excellent job, and I was like, I'm not going to rewrite this. I'm just going to. Just gonna use their uh, their synopsis here, and so I'll be reading along. And uh, feel free to you know chime in if if you, you you so are moved. It begins with a routine event. A disgraced scientist has built a giant robot dog mech, and scales an office building with it, swearing vengeance on the man who stole his wife. Steve Rogers, Captain America, jumps the street on his motor, motorbike and drives through a floor of office workers to get to where he can do some good, triumphantly defeating the mech. Um, so there's a, a little bit of a, also during, during this, it's an inner monologue of Steve. So I thought it was interesting um, the way JMS is setting up this story. Like we're already inside Steve's head, 
so you could see right away that this is important, right? Like he could start with just an action scene, uh, but no, he wants to start inside Steve's head. So I think that just as a precursor to what we can expect for the rest of this story is that, you know, it's important that we kind of understand and what, see what's going on with Steve. Um, and it, it, it basically says, um, you know, like there's a lot of different ways a story can start, and this is one of them. And I, I'm going to, I, I like the beginning because it's an action scene and it, it kind of draws you in kind of like a James Bond movie starts. Right. Um, and I, I was a little taken aback though, because it seemed rather reckless of Steve to break into a floor of an office building where he could easily injure someone. Uh, so, but I suppose like, that's like the fun of comics, right? Like that, you know, suspending disbelief and for the moment, just to enjoy the the spectacle of it all. Um, but I, I I feel like I want to read, and I'm, I'm not going to do this often, but I do want to read the inner monologue because I thought it was interesting. Lots of people wonder where superhero stories get started. Not the origins, necessarily, just the latest whatever it is. Sometimes it starts like this. And I like where he says, just the latest whatever it is, right? Here's the latest number one of Captain America. You know, it was almost like a, a tongue-in-cheek, you know, to to do that. And um, so he says, sometimes it starts like this and that and a whole lot of this. I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy this part just a little. And he's referring to jumping over the street in the motorcycle landing in. And the rest, well, you probably saw it on the evening news. But that's not how every story starts. Same as you, you've got a job. And that comes with stories and maybe some hobbies or secrets. And those always start stories. And then you come home and a whole other kind of story happens. So again, I like how JMS is setting this up, right? It's we're in Steve's head and then there's a couple pages of action. And he's like, you know what? You could have seen this on the evening news. You come home and a whole nother story starts. And here you are, Steve, as a civilian. And you right away know that this is going to be a, a book about Steve. I think that's a good read on that one, Rick. Um, makes a lot of sense. I think I think you nailed the uh, you know sort of the intro, right? It really wasn't about uh, what was going on with the mech dog, right? And that could have been any villain. Uh, it was really about starting to get inside Steve's head and uh, and set the tone for the rest of the the story arc, really. Yeah, and I, I was really excited when you get to that page turn. You get to that part where you go to, you go home because he's tying into some of the stuff that was going on in the previous arc with um, Lansing and I'm blanking on the Kelly. other name. Thank you. Uh, and I love that. I, I, I was so glad to see it and what comes next. I'm not going to spoil because this is your issue, but I, I just really enjoyed it. Right. So, so Steve meets his building supervisor who announces that the owner of the apartment building has decided that it's too expensive. So they're evicting the tenants and selling the building cheaply and quickly. And uh, I love where Steve's like, how cheap? <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, Steve calls his friend, Tony Stark, AKA Iron Man asks for a loan of, uh, of, of the price of the building makes the offer, buys the building, and vows to do right by his neighbors. 
Um, and he and he puts up a sign under new ownership, rent controlled renovations begin immediately. So then we get to the title page. Uh, and so it uh, it just there's no recap to, to put here. Right. So it just says Captain America beginnings and then it gets into credits. But I want to read the top uh, because, you know, we don't do that often when we're reading these. But but when it's a different time period and, and everything, because they're always slightly different. And, and so this one kicks off volume 11. So I, I think it's just, you know, worth reading. As the world teetered on the brink of global war, frail Steve Rogers entered a secret laboratory and was transformed into the American super soldier. For five thrilling years, he fought the Axis powers until a freak stroke of fate threw him into suspended animation. When he awoke, he was a man decades out of his time. Since that fateful day, Steve Rogers has sought his destiny in this brave new world. Captain America Beginnings. So uh, as he works to repair existing damage, Steve explains to a neighbor who brings him a meal that he used to live here with his mother back in the 1930s. And the other place he associates with her is his father's grave, which uh, she visited twice a year, every year, until she died. The neighbor does the math and realizes that from 1936, when his mother died, to 1940, when he became Captain America, Steve Rogers was alone in the world. And and I think this is really cool, right? Like we've seen Steve Rogers as a kid in some stories. Uh, and, you know, in volume seven, you know, when uh, Rick Remender was doing it, he had a lot of flashbacks to that time period, but his mom was still alive. And we really haven't explored this particular time, post-mom dying and Steve basically being on his own as, as a, you know, a young mid-teenager. And so uh, I thought I thought that was an interesting choice on uh, JMS's, uh, you know, interesting choice by him to 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 really focus on this time period. Well, I, I was just going to ask, I mean, you guys are the brain trust here. Uh, has there been any other depiction that you can recall of Steve visiting um, his mom and dad's grave? Particularly in the modern, mo I mean, well. In any era, for that matter, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that before. I've seen him visit, you know, the graves of his, uh, you know, Bucky, right? At least the memorial for Bucky when when he thought Bucky was deceased, and but I've never seen him visit his his mom or dad's grave before, and I really love this. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I I, I want to say yes, but I I couldn't place it. I the, I I you know, but I could be wrong. I I. I I really don't know. A question for our listeners, perhaps. Yep. I also wanted to add just the, one of the things I really appreciate about this whole setup uh, is the pacing of it. Mm -hmm. um, even going back just to the title page, um, you can see JMS's cinematic mindset mm -hmm. of, you know, you're going to start out with the big blockbuster action, then we're going to get to the real actual meat of what it is I'm trying to do here. So he's back at home, and then, you know, under the new management, credits. Here we yep. go. And and so the page that you got to, though, is when he's talking to one of the tenants there, and she's doing the math and everything, and she asks him, but 
how did you survive? And then there's just this close up on him. Yeah. You know, right in the middle of the page. And then you get to the flashback and he's there. He's got, he's already been beat up. He's in his young frail and all it says, I got by. Yep. Yeah. No, you know, I, I agree. I think it, it has a cinematic feel to it for sure. And so as his neighbor says goodbye, Steve thinks back to 1936 when, when the building supervisor was forced to evict him for delinquent rent, but promised he could keep his things in a storage unit in the back because he had known the Rogers and Steve was good people. And Steve had thanked the super and told him not to fret, saying, I always land on my feet. Thinking back on that exchange, Steve actually cries briefly before getting back to work. A few days later, something uh, began with a routine event. Su Susan Storm of the Fantastic Four meets him, explaining that, well, the FF needs help, fighting uh, the, the dictator Psycho Man and his daughter, who are gathering an army in the microverse. Steve agrees to help and is soon battling the forces of evil in another dimension for two days. And he returns home to find a, a crashed car and a group of armed robbers on the street outside. And, and rushing into the fight, Steve is exhausted from his fight against Psycho Man. But a shout from a, a helpful passing construction contractor alerts him to a surprise attack. And he and he he takes care of everything there. Um, so I I liked this uh, because you know. We rarely do see Steve in the pages of Captain America interact with other heroes. Uh, there's his supporting cast, right? So we we might see, you know, the the, the Steve Rogers or Captain America centric characters, but but the larger Marvel universe we we don't see. And so here he is, and and you know Manhattan, right? And uh, it, sure enough, he's got to have to run into you know. Uh, uh, other heroes and now people know where he lives they could just come and ask him for help and so i kind of i kind of like that i do too rick uh, i mean and, and i like and, and you know another feature of this i mean when he comes back we see something that we don't normally see as well and that is you know he he may be super enhanced but he's still human uh, he can still experience exhaustion and the effects of exhaustion on reaction time and, and you know, cognition. And, 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 and we see that here. We see that he is vulnerable. He's, he's not invulnerable all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, a, a, you know, just a, a local passerby, a contractor is able to be there in time and, and help him out when he needs it. And I like that vulnerability here in CAP. I like to see that. Yeah. I think it's so also worth noting that who he runs into specifically, who he's helping out, the Fantastic Four, who has JMS written before, the Fantastic Four. We might see some other characters in the future issues that JMS has been known for writing. Ah, little rising stars action. Nice, Excellent. Nice. <laughs> So after after Steve's mom died, he he had slept in in warehouses and and worked multiple jobs to feed himself and try to to build savings. And and one day while while selling papers, his good friend Arnie Roth uh, had met him to uh, you know help with the Daily Bugle's uh, atrocious reportage of the Sudanland crisis, before saying that he knew a man whose building was charging low rents to friend, and uh, and he was asking for a security deposit. 
So Steve's energized by the prospect of a, an achievable win. So he redoubles his efforts. So Steve, uh, and then we cut to modern time. Steve tracks down the construction contractor, uh, Soon Kim, who admitted that he was unemployed and living out of his van with his family at the moment. So Steve offered to hire him to, to help do the repairs on the building, and of course he accepts. To, and then we cut to um, a character we, we haven't seen yet. And this is, uh, it says two years ago, and there is this uh, billionaire, Travis Lane, that hired a guide to lead him through a South American jungle in search of a, a temple. And on the journey, the guide had admitted that the temple was hard to find as certain places were significant enough to defy being mapped. At a routine camp, Travis Lane had explained that the temple was important to the man, the being called Day, known to some of the ancient people as the Undying One, and to some as the Great Adversary. So Travis Lane had explained to the guy that he was seeking Day to trade his soul for youth and a longer life. And the guide had laughed, and Tra Travis Lane was seeking Asmodee and assuming that this was his own idea. Asmodee was undying because he was always active at important times, undying because he took the bodies and lives of others to do his business. Now, Travis Lane had made his fortune selling weapons to bad men and then blackmailed the authorities that had tried to stop him, so it meant he had resources. With a wave of the guide's hand, the temple appeared around them, and the guide explained that a crossroads point in human history was coming, and that humanity must be made to take the lesser path, and that Travis Lane was the perfect puppet for the job. As vicious red smoke had flowed out of the guide, Travis Lane had screamed and screamed. So, a, uh, a we cut to... Um, a month later, and we're in Bangkok, and a much younger Travis Lane had tracked a woman in a restaurant and introduced himself. Her name is Ariana Walters, and she had lost her job as a project manager for AIM. And uh, Bob, what does AIM stand for? Uh, Advanced Idea Mechanics. Very nice. Um, and this was during the reshuffle of the takeover by uh, Roberto de Costa. Does anybody know who he is? You might as well go, John, because Bob doesn't. Was he a boxer? Son. I think I saw him fight a welter, welterweight, right? Sunspot. Sunspot, Bob. Who's Sunspot? Uh, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of the new mutants. Oh, okay. That's fascinating. Bob's like, I, I got to get that checked out by my dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, uh, Robert Acosta had taken over AIM, and so she lost her job. So she's on the run from the authorities, and she's desperate. Um, and he, Travis Lane, had a job offer. His goal was simple. Rather than openly threatening change and leaving their plans to be reversed by successors and reformers, they should present the illusion of change while getting everything they wanted. She had needed to hear his plan, so he told her. And that's kind of like, we don't get to hear what he says, but she agrees immediately. The plan would need resources, which he would provide, personnel, which her contacts among the former agents of AIM would provide, and a list of targets, some 
more obvious than others. So we cut back to modern time, and it's uh, the morning after hiring uh, Sung Kim, and Steve uh, got up and got to work thinking of a day in 1938. And so he thinks back to that day, and he's he's just short of the money he needs uh, for the deposit for the apartment. And Steve had been sorely tempted by a hot dog stand because um, he was hungry, but uh, a passerby had told him of a gathering in the park that had free food. So going there, he had been drawn to the food stands, and he barely knows the speaker and his promises of a bright future of personal prosperity and national power of a people acting in a unison towards a shared purpose of the German-American Bund and its swastika banners. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, wow. That is a, that's a pretty spectacular final splash page there, Rick. It's a pretty spectacular Shocking. first issue. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, we get, we get action. We get uh, Steve, in his civilian identity in modern time, we get to see him in his uh, teenage time. We get to see the mysterious villain uh, being uh, kind of putting together their plans. And then Nazis in America? I mean, how do you not read the next issue? Right, right. Yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction. Should, should we get to the next issue or do you want to talk about this now? What? I don't know. Is there any more to say? Uh, it's a it's a fabulous first issue. And it, en it ends on quite a shocker. Um, but, you know, I, I love the I, I, there's something, John, you mentioned the pacing. I love the uh, the back and forth, you know, the time jumps, mm -hmm, uh, I agree. you know, it, it's like clockwork, right? It's it's uh, what a metronome. That's right. It's like a metronome uh, back from the future to the past to the future to the past. And, and along the way, uh, like little stops prior to the present day uh, as it gets closer and closer and closer to the present day. It's it's really, really nicely paced. Agreed. All Agreed right. As well. All right. So uh, should I read the solicitation for number two? Oh, please, Rick. When Spider-Man interrupts Date Night to ask for help taking down the Sinister Six's latest plot, Captain America begrudgingly obliges. Meanwhile, more and more of Steve's former enemies are being recruited by a mysterious new threat, one seemingly connected to an enemy Steve faced long before he picked up the shield. So the title of this story is Taking Aim, and it's the acronym AIM. And this one, uh, we have the same creators as before. Uh, it has a release date of October 25th, 2023, cover date of November 2023. The cover is, uh, again, by Jesus Saez. And uh, Bob, you want to take us through the cover? Sure, Rick, I'd love to. So you know, right now we've got what appears to be uh, some scene above New York City. So, you know, we're at that mid-story level. So we can see some rooftops below us, but we can also see some some towers in the background stretching up to the sky. And in the foreground, we see, uh, see Spider-Man and uh, he's got his web and he's swinging through uh, the space in between uh, the, 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 the buildings here. And we see Cap and he's got his shield and he is leaping in, in midair. Uh, right alongside of, of Spider-Man. It's a really great uh, cover. And it's it's really nice to see Spider-Man on a Captain America cover. We don't get to see that too often. 
So if if you're looking at this cover, you have Captain America and you have Spider-Man. Which of their themes pops into your head right now? Oh, that's a sing I, it. I, I, sing I, it. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. All right. Does whatever a spider can. Okay. Spins okay. a web. All right. You can, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah okay. sorry, I got the yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, how about you, John? Which which theme popped into your head? Was it uh, when Captain America swings his mighty shield? Yeah, it is going to be that one. It, it really lies. is. Maybe it's just damnable lies. Like, just because in the foreground. But what I will say is more than any, more than the song or anything else, what this cover gave me the feel of is old 1970s, early 1980s Marvel team up. Mm. Oh, yeah, you're right. That stuff. Yeah. That does look cool. All right, Bob, All right. you're up. All right. So, you know, we start this issue where we left off with the last one. And, and we see this, uh, we see this gathering of the German American Bund in some park here in New York City. It's, uh, we don't know which one. I'll mention a little bit later which one I think this might be, but we won't get to that yet. And, and Steve is observing what's going on, uh, but only very briefly because he can't help himself. And he, he starts to raise questions out loud, addressing the speaker, who we have to presume is probably Fritz Kuhn, the, the head of the German-American Bund at the time, a, a real world figure. And uh, he, 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 he tries to question uh, what the plans are for you know, this fascist movement in the United States. But before he can get very far, uh, these two Bundist brown shirts, aka goons, come out of nowhere to accost Steve, uh, threaten him, trying to intimidate him, trying to get him to shut up. And of course, Steve, being Steve Rogers, um, won't won't relent. Right? He's persistent. And then we see in the next page Steve walking away from uh, from this event, and his shirt is torn and untucked, and he's got a bloody nose. Um, but you know that he he gave as good as he probably got, or at least the best of his ability, before uh, he was uh, forced to flee the field. So after that, we see the story jump to again. Uh, can, I, the, can I interrupt here? Yeah. I, this is the humor part, right? Yeah. So an old man on the park bench says, "Are you all right, son? You know, because he, he he's walking like you described." And right. Steve <laughs> says, "Yeah, well, you, you ought to see the other guys." And then you you cut to the other guys and they all look perfectly fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there you go. Steve yeah, got a sense of humor. They're like brushing dust off their uniform. You know, they're not even disheveled in the least bit. But yeah, right. And I love this part. And, and the old man says, I don't think this is going as well as you think it is. <laughs> but I love Steve's determination and look on his face. And he goes, give me time. And it's not the first not the last time we hear him say that in this story right right so you know we have a number of time jumps in this issue just as as we did the last one rick and in fact in this one we have seven different time jumps so now we take the first time jump and it jumps to a year prior to the present day and we see travis lane the founder of this new advanced idea mechanics who we met in the previous issue and we see him with ariana walters and they're on this dock on a pacific island and they're telling the real estate agent whom they just bought this property from uh specifically travis lane says to him you'll get what's coming to you meaning of course he'll he'll get his payment and it's a little bit of a funny uh interaction here because the real estate agent uh, sort of uh he, he sort of pushes back on that because he understands what that cliche means in all the movies where the villains always say you'll get what's coming to you and they end up dying. 
But Travis Lane, of course, shows him that the money has already been transferred into his account. So feeling somewhat mollified, the real estate agent gets on his little boat and starts to head out to sea, only to have it explode into, uh, you know, smithereens uh, just briefly offshore. So we, we get a sense here that Travis Lane isn't messing around, number one. And number two, he'd already transferred the money. So we know it's it's really not about the money. He's not a villain who cares about getting wealthy, right? Yeah. He, uh, he just basically lost all those funds that he transferred to the real estate agents banks and that's not consequential to him at all he's he's got money to burn literally literally absolutely yeah <sighs> so uh <laughs> that was uh, for anybody who's listening that was john that wasn't me this this time <laughs> yes so in in the third time jump we skip back to New York City in 1938. And we see Steve moving into that apartment that he was referred to by his pal, Arnie Roth. Uh, but as he opens the door, he discovers that it's, it's little more than a supply closet that has had the things moved out of it. So uh, it doesn't even have its own bathroom, right? The bathroom's down the hall. And we get introduced at this point to one of Steve's neighbors. It's a young, young woman by the name of Tiffany. Uh, and she's at this point complaining to uh, their landlord, a, a guy by the name of Antonelli, about uh, the malfunctioning toilet in uh, her apartment. Um, and anyway, the, it, Antonelli hurries away saying he can't do anything about it. And Steve, being the kind of guy that Steve is, offers to look into it and take care of it for Tiffany. Again, we skip forward to the present time. And Steve and uh, Sung Kim are working on renovating the apartment complex that, uh, that Steve has purchased. Uh, and in particular, Steve is working on retiling uh, one of the bathrooms. And uh, he's, you could tell he's paying really close attention to the job. And um, so uh, Sung comes in and he's, they're having a conversation and he tells Steve about his father and his father's work ethic. And, and we learn that uh, Sung Kim's father was North Korean and he was a, a, a building contractor in North Korea that had this really um, uh, detailed uh, uh, ethic about the work that he did. And they used to call him, uh, what was the nickname? I can't remember the nickname that they called him, but they had a nickname um, for uh, his, his dad. Uh, about uh, basically referencing the fact that he, you know, he would not compromise on quality workmanship. And that's something that Sung Kim um, uh, took on himself as well. And it was really important to him that you have pride in your workmanship. They called him zero tolerance Dejong. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, that can be construed, of course, in many different ways when you when you think of the North Korean government. But uh, But in this case, it was about you know, zero tolerance for, uh, you know, uh, having great workmanship and taking pride in the work that one does with one's hands. So we learned something here about Sung Kim. Not only is he like his father, he believes in quality workmanship, but he, he knows, you know, based on his father's experiences, uh, what it means to, to live under oppression and exploitation and, uh, and what he's striving to achieve here in, in the United States. So uh, we get a little surprise at this point. Uh, Spider-Man stops by uh, and he needs Steve's help. He asks for Steve's help because he has heard through uh, Black Cat that uh, the Sinister Six are plotting to, to kill Spidey that very night. So he asks Steve to help him out. And Steve had plans uh, to go out with Sharon, um, but he and, can't- And I like how he says it, right? He tells, he tells Spidey, he holds his hand up, right? And he counts on each finger. Yeah. And he says, I'm taking, 
Sharon to the movies tonight, right? As he touches each finger. Right. And uh, basically like, here are all the reasons I am not going to do this. <laughs> now, you also skipped over the, is Steve making a joke here? I, I was going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to get to that. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, so the point is Spidey comes, he needs Steve's help. Steve has plans. Steve, you know, once again, has his professional obligations and uh, sets his personal life aside and says, yep, okay, I'll help you out. But then he makes a, he makes a bit of a joke, right? Because um, he talks about uh, being creeped out by, uh, by eight eyes, you know, anything over two eyes, which is, of course, is a reference to, to spiders having many eyes. Uh, and, and to the point where he leans out the window and he asks Mrs. Rosen down below, uh, how many eyes is too many? And she even responds, is this, is this, a, is this a spider thing? And of course, Steve responds yes, and, and Spidey is, uh, you know, mock offended by the whole uh, the whole ordeal. So later on that night, uh, Steve, uh, now garbed as Captain America, and Spidey are waiting outside of where they're expected to uh, to encounter the Sinister Six. And time goes by, and six forty five turns into seven twenty three, and seven twenty three now turns into quarter past nine, and and still nothing has occurred. And then Spidey gets a phone call uh, from, uh, from the black cat herself. And uh, she lets him know that uh, things have been called off because Doc Ock's cousin is in from out of town uh, and they're going to do something with the cousin. And so they have to reschedule Spidey's murder. So uh, kind of a funny little scene. It was. Yeah. You know, Cap wasted yeah. his whole night when he could have been out with Sharon at the movie theater. But that's just the way, that's just the guy he is, right? One of his, one of his friends needed help and he stepped up to be there for him. So in our next time jump, we go back to 10 months previous to present day and we're back on that AIM Island. And now at this point, we see a, a fully formed, uh, you know, laboratories and workshops and we see a bunch of computer programmers sitting around different computer uh, consoles. Uh, with the technicians studying their consoles, presumably working on different code. And one of them starts to notice that something's a little bit off. And he mentions it to one of his colleagues that, you know, these, this, this code isn't all uh, coding language. There's there what appears to be some magical symbols interwoven into uh, the computer code. And then he suddenly stands up uh, as if he's going to go off and get a cup of coffee. In fact, his friend asks him to, I think, to get one for him as well. And he walks right out on the balcony and steps up onto the ledge and just pitches himself over the edge of the balcony down to his death, as if he's been somehow suddenly compelled to do so by some external force. After this, we go back to the lower side, uh, lower east side of Manhattan back in 1938. And Steve is, um, is watching this parade of, of Nazi brown shirts, again, presumably the German-American Bund uh, parading down the street. And nearby, we get a peek at a, at a secret meeting that's going on. And we get a chance to uh, meet, uh, for the first time in the book, Baron Heinrich Zemo and Baron Wolfgang von Strucker, who are now just meeting each other for the first time. In fact, Zemo uh, mentions that uh, he's, he's glad to meet Strucker, uh, but he's, he's familiar with Strucker's reputation because there had been a plot that Strucker was involved in to assassinate a U.S. senator, which was uh, ultimately foiled by Dominic Fortune. And that was way back in Hulk 23, uh, which had a cover date of October of 1980. So really, long time ago, um, that, was, uh, uh, that pulled that one out. 
Now, the interesting thing here is uh, Strucker um, wasn't really in favor of that plot. And he goes on to talk about the fact that this was something that Hitler directed uh, that he thought was going to have a negative impact on uh, the, the Nazi strategy of getting America to at least be neutral, if not an ally uh, to, to the Third Reich. Uh, because he felt if he took out a U.S. senator, that would cause an up, up, uproar among people. It would galvanize the public perception against the Third Reich and then have a, 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 a seriously negative effect on, on what they were hoping to achieve. In this case, Zemo and, and Strucker are discussing a new strategy of about finding an unpopular minority group painting them as powerful enemies, then causing a disaster and scapegoating them so that Americans would then uh, come to the na Nazi cause, uh, or at least be neutral uh, in what is going on in Europe at the time. And it appears that they've set their sights on an upcoming Bund rally at Madison Square Garden. So about the same Wait time- Wait a minute. Why would they be targeting their own, their own supporters? Yeah. Well, you know, as 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 they're discussing, right, they have to uh, they have to scapegoat a group. So, you know, uh, these people, you know, one of the interesting characters, Rick, you might have noticed is a guy by the name of Rolf. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's a few people here, right? We get to see uh, Zemo, we get to see Strucker, and we see this this third character whose whose last name is never mentioned. His name is Rolf. And we see him periodically throughout this book, and we don't really know who his last name is, but we do know, I think, that he is probably acting uh, on, on behalf of this Asmodee. Uh, and so he is planting the seeds, I think, and uh, what's going on here. And so what Zemo and Strucker have come up with, with Rolf's help, of course, leading him down this, this path, is that really the German-American Bund may be a dispensable uh, organ to uh, to to. Uh, scapegoat this uh, this minority group, and and then cause a public upswell of support for uh, um, for the Nazi or at least the Bund. Yeah, I I'll tell you that just goes to show how evil and uh, vile, right? The these 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 two are in that they're willing to sacrifice you know that many people and uh, and even their own followers uh, just. Plants, plants that makes that very clear, right? I thought it was kind of cool that we got to see uh, von Strucker and and uh, Zemo uh, at the same time. Uh, you know, I I don't know if I've ever seen them together before. I you know I could be wrong, but um, but I thought that was cool pulling them together. Yeah, and and I and and obviously it's uh, it's before before the mask, you know, Zemo, right? right. So this is yeah. very early on in the war before even American involvement. And so we are seeing him uh, in, a, you know, really in his prime. So uh, we're still back in 1938 and, uh, and we see Steve in his room and he gets, uh, he gets a visitor from his old building superintendent, Mr. Mr. Mueller. Uh, who, if you recall, uh, Mueller. Had put, Mueller had Mueller. put a bunch of uh, of Steve's uh, personal effects and his mom's personal effects in storage, uh, and he and he told Steve that he would get these to him, you know, when he could. So we, we jump ahead now, where we're maybe I don't know a year or so later, and and Steve's got this apartment, and Mr. Mueller shows up, and uh, and uh, he he tells Steve about his personal experience. He knew he knew Steve's dad um, for many years. 
uh, and, and Mueller had emigrated to the United States uh, from Germany before the, the, the really the, the war began in, in Europe. And, and he tells Steve that, you know, he saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was happening and he couldn't support it. And he felt like he had to exercise his conscience. He had to, had to stand there, stay there and, and be part of what was going on or, or leave Germany. And so he chose to leave Germany and come to the United States. And one of the things he, he gives Steve is uh, it's a framed shadow box with uh, Steve's father's medals and ribbons uh, from World War One. Uh, and, and we love that, you know, I, I love that, uh, um, having, having made one of those for my dad uh, with his wartime medals and ribbons, uh, that really resonated with me. Um, and uh, particularly, you know, Steve has them hanging on his wall in his room. So love, love that, uh, that, that sort of family, um, and just a, a very warm feeling for me of, of Steve being connected to his dad. Um, and then at the same time, though, he, he hears something going on. He looks out his window and he sees a bunch of Nazis outside. Uh, again, these brown shirts from the German-American Bund. And they appear to be harassing um, uh, some Hasidic Jews who are passing through the neighborhood. So Steve, being Steve, naturally, he goes out to confront them. Uh, and just when we think he's about ready to get another serious beatdown by the brown shirt goons, he looks up to see all the women uh, his neighbors in their windows, and they're all holding buckets. Uh, and uh, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out what might be in those buckets, but sure enough, they turn them on uh, on the brown shirts who sort of look up and you know question what these women are possibly going to do to them. And it turns out all those buckets are full of the toilet uh, materials that they can't flush because Mr. Antonelli has not yet fixed the toilets. And so the brown shirts truly are brown shirts at that point. What, what are what are toilet materials? Well, you know, you know, the poop, Rick, the poop, the poop ah. and the pee, the number one and the number two. <laughs> Actually, that's a joke I use on my students, Rick. You know why after a hurricane, you never should drink uh, water from the toilet bowl? There's two reasons. Uh, one, you shouldn't two. do it beforehand either, but okay. <laughs> reasons number one and reason number two. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Needless to say, the brown shirts abandon the field of combat at that point uh, with their tails between their legs. Again, we jump forward. This time, it's six weeks before. Wait, may, sorry, may I interrupt? You may. Before you leave that page, I, I, love, I love the fact that they got doused. That's hilarious. But the very bottom panel, mm. young Steve Rogers standing next to these two Hebrew men, and the shadows, and he's casting Captain America's shadow. That is awesome. It just gave me chills. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Talk Indeed, about that's great. Talk about foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's beautifully rendered. All right, so uh, now we're we're back in the future, right? Back to the future. We're six weeks prior to the present day, and we see Travis. That made no sense. With Back to the Future, six weeks prior to the current day. It makes perfect sense. We're back to the future from 1938, but we're still not to the present day. We're six weeks prior to that. So technically, wouldn't it still be the past? Well, we're, we could just, it depends where you started, Rick. Don't, don't you know Buckaroo Banzai? <laughs> nice. All right, sorry. Oh. I Huh? Nice, nice, huh? I, I yeah. will defer to you. All right. All right. Sorry. So we're six weeks 
before the present day. And we see Travis Lane in the house of Henry Cavanaugh. Uh, and we don't know who this Henry Cavanaugh is, but Travis Lane sort of fills us in on who this guy is because he knows that Tra uh, that Henry is a serial killer. And he's Didn't got he play Superman? <laughs> Henry Cavanaugh? Yeah. Yeah. No, maybe a different guy. Maybe okay. Different guy. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. buff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, he's got uh, 14 bodies buried under his house. And Lane knows that. And we see it's really interesting. So Kavanaugh has his back to, to Travis Lane and, and Lane's going on and on. And Kavanaugh's just sort of playing him along and he opens his lunchbox and he's got a handgun in there. And I mean, he could turn around anytime and shoot this guy. But it's really interesting that he has sort of the confidence in himself and uh, in, the, in uh, the, the state of mind that he's letting this play out because he's really interested in what sort of idiot or genius would come into his house and accuse him of these things, knowing that he is a murder, uh, a murder serial killer. So it's Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Yeah, Superman. Who, uh, yeah, I was I thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought you knew that, Rick. It's all right. <laughs> Continue. All right. Thank you. So he, uh, he, anyway, he's in Kavanaugh's home. He tells him that he knows his deal. He tells Kavanaugh what he's looking for. And basically he wants to recruit this serial murderer for AIM. Uh, and in particular, he, uh, he shows him what power he has to offer by showing basically in a reflection, this Asmodee demon. Uh, and of course, Kavanaugh being the serial murderer that he is, is fascinated and attracted by this offer. He then explains that what he needs Kavanaugh for is essentially to deal with these uh, agents of change. So he explains this concept of nexus points again. We, we were introduced to that briefly in the first issue, but he explains it more thoroughly here. And he talks about these nexus points, which are turning points in history in which agents of change arise to guide the world to the next stage of development, evolutionary development, right? Getting better, right? That's what these agents of change are supposed to do, change things for the better. But Ames' plan under Lane's leadership is to try to stop the next nexus point from ever happening. And the only way to do that is to identify those agents of change that will bring it about and kill them. And he says, that's going to be Henry's job, number one. And number two, the most dangerous of those agents of change is going to be Captain America, who he's ultimately going to have to deal with. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. So you know, we get to that last page, Rick, and uh, it's, a, it's a great final page, right? It's, it's basically split in half. In the top half, we see cap and uniform overlooking the city. And in the bottom half, we see uh, pre-serum Steve Rogers escorting those two Hasidic Jews to safety. So we see the connection across time of these two heroes. Yeah, I like this issue. I um, It sets up the villains more, like we learn more about the villains and, and their their the reason, the, what they're trying to do. So you, you, as you, you know, very well explain the nexus points and so on. Um, and then we also see the villains from uh, the boon time, right? We see the, the two barons. Uh, and then in, in modern time, you know, there's a nice little uh, story between, you know, Steve and, and uh, Spider-Man, right? And, and we get to see them together. So uh, there's so many cool things going on in this story. And, and, it, and every one of them progresses the story further in different time periods. 
I want to see what happens yeah. next, Rick. All right. So uh, I will, uh, I think I should read the, I uh, get the solicitation on this one. Let's get to that. Misty Knight has uncovered a string of murders with seemingly supernatural origins, and Captain America has been marked as the next target. Something about the crime scene strikes Steve as familiar, but can he find the connection between the murders and his past before this mysterious new threat finds him? Find out in Stand. And I'm sorry, I hear that and I'm like, R.E.M., stand in the place where you work now, face north. I used to love that song. Did you guys like that song? Oh, no. No. <laughs> that was a, that was an Atlanta band, wasn't it? R.E.M.? Yes, yeah. R.E.M. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. It used to be the uh, opening song credits uh, to a Fox, early, early Fox TV show starring... Um, I seem to recall that show. Who's who's the guy? Uh, Elliot, Elliot, uh, Chris Elliot. You know Chris yeah, Elliot? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had his own TV show for yeah. a little bit. Right. And uh, he was kind of like a loser, lived in his mom's basement type of thing. Yeah. That was the song to the uh, opening credits. Yeah. Huh. Things I haven't thought about in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought it to our attention. Yeah. Uh, so for the credits for this one, um, we got a little bit of a change here where uh, issues one and two were strictly penciled and inked by Jesus Saez. Uh, but this one, uh, he gets uh, help from Lan Medina. Uh, so Lan Medina is also penciling and inking. So I'm assuming they're inking their own pencils uh, in here as opposed to each other's. Uh, but that's uh, that's a change in the credits. Uh, the cover is still by Jesus Sayez. The release date, November 29th, 2023, and cover date being January of 2024. Uh, John, would you like to take us through the cover of, of number three? Would love to. Thank you. So on the cover, it's it seems to be a pretty simple, straightforward kind of thing. It's a table with... Five cards uh, sitting on it. One is face down, four face up. And you have the chief characters in this issue. Uh, you see Captain America, you see Asthma Day, you see a young Steve Rogers, and then you see the uh, one of the German protagonists from the flashbacks. But if you pay attention, you see that you're talking about two aces and two eights. Ooh. which is notoriously known as the dead man's hand. Yes. Um, nice so catch. if you, you hope that maybe, and Rick knows this being a poker player, you hope that maybe there's another ace on that face down card. <laughs> yeah. And then you have a full house and you're not going to die. So right. the other thing that's worth noticing though, on the cover is you've got these candles that have been burning each one's, been extinguished they're smoldering um it kind of adds to the occult vibe that we're dealing with here mm -hmm. bob do you know the uh history behind dead man's hand i surely don't so uh that comes from the tradition that that's the hand that wild bill hickok was holding when he was gunned down ah yeah so uh he was in a poker game and uh you know, he was killed playing poker. And there you go. Those were his cards. Wow. 
legend legend says that wild bill never sat with his back to the door he always sat with the back to the wall except for that last day where he got his dead man's hand he happened to be sitting with his back to the doors of the saloon huh wow thank you that's awesome that'll learn him yeah right yeah sure he all right better now <laughs> uh, no, john i got I got, gonna... I got I got a wonder here like who it was a jms who who sort of conceived this for the cover or if this was you know all the artists that's a great I, question i don't know Very we'll try we'll try to remember that next yeah. week um all right john we're, we're going to turn this over to you so with issue three, we start off with uh, the images of Cap being thawed out and different points from his life flashing back and forward. And what he's doing is he's talking about time and how some of his buddies would even tell him that time just really doesn't exist and that everything is perpetually now. We're just perceiving it different ways. But whoa, then you... <laughs> that's heavy, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, we're getting existential here in the very first page. <laughs> so, but then you turn the page and we're back to the present time, except there's shadows layered of previous things going on in this room. Uh, there's some really funky writing all over the walls. And Cap is there with Misty Knight. Uh, she's there on behalf of the Aberrant Crimes Division. And there's a man duct taped to the wall. Well, what the remains of a man uh, who's been burned to ash and Misty is consulting with Cap. So while this goes on, we see the crime itself being played out in these shadows, flashbacks overlaid on top of what's going on. Um, Ames serial killer that we just met, Henry Cavanaugh, not Cavill, uh, has taped the victim to the wall, explaining how the shadow equations have determined how he the person taped will one day be at the forefront of a peace movement that will stop a war. So Henry is there to prevent that from happening. Henry then covers the wall with the mystic symbols, sealing the victim's spirit in so it can't pass along to another person to continue his mission. This has become very important, this whole ordeal, is they're trying to not just kill these change agents, but they're trying to stop the the spirit of change from moving on to other people and still accomplishing its task and so when he is able to kill this man and have it all sealed what's remained besides the ash is this one gem and he or a crystal and he's able to just take that and put it in his box of souvenirs we also go ahead Please. And before we continue, I, I, I think for those who aren't familiar with Misty Knight, uh, Bob, uh, do you want to explain who Misty Knight is? And sure. I, I know how you like to describe no, what I they don't. wear so well. No, I don't want to describe her. No, I'm, I'm not up for that. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Come on, please. No, I'd have to. You want me to look it up? Because I, I'm not I'm not. I'm not prepared to extemporaneously talk about Misty Knight's background. Oh, well, you, but you could describe who she is, right? Well, like, I mean, we, like we, we read about her with uh, the Sam Wilson books, right? Yeah. I have no recollection of that though. <laughs> okay. There's so, too many penguins. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How about you, John? Do you, do you want to explain to the listeners who Misty Knight is? 
So Misty Knight, she and Colleen Wing are private detectives. Misty Knight has gone on to become law enforcement of other forms along the way. She also has a cybernetic arm. Her right arm uh, has been replaced. She is a fighter par excellence, a really, really smart detective, and the occasional love interest of Sam Wilson. There you go. All right. Nicely done. Thank you. Now, I think uh, you're about to get into what she was pulling out of her house. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So we're back in dealing with what's going on, them investigating. And as they're looking into this, Misty Knight reaches in. Um, she says, I have someone who may have some answers on the line. And Steve makes a, a joke of Zoom calls. Not exactly. And he, she breaks out a what looks to be an action figure of Dr. Strange. Um, and as soon as she sets it down, it gets all glowy and comes to life and looks at Steve says, hey, Cap. And very nonchalantly, Cap's like, Steven, so what's new in your world? Well, frankly, a little weirded out. Totally get that. Just a you know, two Fun. co-workers mm -hmm. having conversation. Yeah, so, and yeah, I like because he and he he's like I I can't be everywhere at once, right? So exactly, it's like a talisman of some sort. Exactly, he's broken it out into I think he, did he say forty seven? Yeah, forty seven figurines. He's broken out and put this little small piece of essence. I like the fact that he uh, Stephen says figurine and caps like dolls. Yes, <laughs> yes. This becomes a running gag throughout the uh, the rest of the, the six-issue arc. So, all right. So while one part of the story is replaying this murder, Cap and Misty are investigating. They're having the conversation with Dr. Strange. And, oh, I guess it's also worth notice, noting that um, when Dr. Strange's figurine or doll comes to life, there has to be magic words, and the magic words are there's no place like home. Nice. <laughs> All right. So, so now we're going back to Brooklyn in 1938. And I think this is where we switch artists, right? You can see a little bit of a style yes. difference here. So, you know, says is finished here and then we move on to Medina. Yes. And I really like, I appreciate the change in art style to go with the change in time period. Mm -hmm. um, so we pick up with Steve. He's, uh, engaged in heckling the German-American Bund, attacking their ideas of racial purity. And he's talking about comparing iron swords to steel swords, how one is so pure, but it's actually weak and brittle, and the other one is mixed, so it actually comes out stronger. Steve is ridiculed by the speaker, chased off as he walks away. He is picked up in a car by mobster Meyer Lansky and taken to his office, an actual historical figure, mind you. And this is his first appearance in the comic. I believe so. So there Lansky explains his interest in Steve, that he too was a little kid who had to stand up to big guys. Steve explains his hatred of the Nazis is his opposition to bullies. We've definitely heard that before. Bullies who are cowards and will wilt when facing superior numbers. Lansky, explains his own concern with the Nazis and how he wants to stop them. He has done some harassment, but he has learned that there is a big event coming called Operation Garden. 
He has had his men investigate, but they didn't get very far because, well, they look like gangsters. So while the police are dealing with that and he's trying to find out more information, he turns to Steve and says, I want you to look into this matter and report anything that you find out on the operation. And Steve agrees. So now we're going back to the future, but not quite all the way to the present, six weeks prior. <laughs> My head hurts. <laughs> <laughs> to AIM Island, where Travis Lane, Ariana Walters, and Henry Cavanaugh have met. And Lane and Walters explain to Henry how he will be, how he will take on a new guise as the emissary. An armored suit and injections of a super serum have been prepared as well as exposure to gamma radiation. The demon asthma day appears, citing how human agents cannot be trusted. So for this operation, the demon must bond with the emissary. Travis Lane doesn't care for this a whole lot <laughs> because the implication is that asthma day is going to leave his body and he does. And so Travis Lane then gets consumed by fire and dies gruesomely. The demon couldn't happen him. to a nicer guy. Oh, indeed. right, right. He got what the was coming to him. He did. Yeah, he did indeed. Just like that guy in the boat. Yeah. The demon enters Henry's body to observe the next part of the operation. As Cap departs from the crime scene, he is confronted by Henry, now the emissary. Asthma Day within tells Cap that having him, having let him live decades ago was a mistake. So now he must die. And we end on wow. it's fight time. Yeah, it's fight time. Nice cliffhanger. Yeah. 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 Another good is issue. Um, it, just advancing the story and then introducing new characters, right? We get to see. Yep. Uh, the, the mob, you know, you know, uh, the gangsters, you know, basically yes. you know, they get introduced. So, and they're an important part of, of this story. And then we also get to see the gruesome death, like the way uh, Kavanaugh is going around killing people. What a horrible, horrible, scary way to go. I mean, I, I got a little bit of chills. It is doing this. And I thought, I thought JMS did a masterful job. Um, explaining how Kavanaugh killed somebody while Cap and Misty Knight and Dr. Strange are there doing the investigation, mm -hmm. right? Like the way it went back and forth, you know, it could, he could have just, it could have just, here's the death. And then here's the, the, them afterwards checking it out, but no, he intertwined them. And mm -hmm. I thought that was just so well-written and uh, entertaining. And then on top of that, Saez did an amazing job with the art to to explain that. I mean, imagine imagine getting that script and saying, okay, make it visible. You know, make make this intertwining going back and forth work. And yeah. uh, he did. He did a masterful job at that. Yeah. I thought, you know, Kavanaugh, he's a scary dude, right? I mean, he he sees what just happened to Travis Lane with Asmodee leaving his body. Mm -hmm. And then Asmodee says, I'm going to bond with you. I need your consent. And Kavanaugh goes, you betcha. Right. Right? Like, wow. Wow, he's a seriously demented dude. Indeed. All right, should we get to number four? Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. 
So number four uh, is the solicitation is the enemy strikes when the mysterious organization targeting Captain America goes on the offensive. Steve Rogers thinks he's prepared, but the battle is not what it seems. Who or what is the emissary? And the title of this story is called A Series of Unexpected Attacks. And uh, in this one, we do have uh, the full penciler and inker is Lon Medina. So that that's a change. And then the colors, uh, we have uh, Espen Grudenjern, I believe is how it's pronounced. So this is another uh, Jesus Sayas cover. And uh, Bob, you want to take us through this one? Sure, Rick, I'd love to. So it looks what we see here looks to be, it's a white cover basically in the background, but in the foreground, we see uh, we see the emissary and we see Cap locked in what appears to be Mortal Kombat. And they're, and they're being pitched from the left side of the cover toward the right off what seems to be a collapsing building. And so uh, the emissary is, is uh, uh, on the, the top position with his two double-bladed knives, one in each hand, uh, uh, plunging toward Cap, who's falling backwards. Um, and, and Cap has reached out with his right hand and he's grabbed the emissary around his, uh, basically his collar uh, and his, his shield arm uh, is pitched back uh, over his uh, left shoulder as if he's getting ready to bring it up and strike forward. So we see a flow of motion occurring here in this battle. Uh, it's really uh, it's really a great cover, I, I, I think, to, to show these two forces locked in mortal combat. Yeah, I agree. Would you, would you say the emissary has the high ground? Indeed, he does. Yeah. yeah. And he's using that momentum. Uh, and, and you could see the momentum of like uh, his his right arm coming down as Cap's left arm is cocked. So and with the falling bricks and everything, it, it does it does lends itself to a really nice. And I think the shadowing is really cool, too. It does. I mean, it, it shows, uh, you know, just the, the flow of the scene, right? As if they're, mm -hmm. they're flowing past the light. Yep. So. Uh, on this one, uh, Captain America has been challenged in the street by the emissary and the demon-powered serial killer, Henry Cavanaugh. So Cap employs what he calls his ham sandwich, which is a, a method of quickly assessing an unknown opponent. Um, and I thought, I thought that was funny because uh, he even mocks the name a little bit. He goes, I, you know, it's, I, I, I came up with it so I can name it. Um, and I thought it was almost like a reference to number one when the stranger said Steve looked like he could use a ham sandwich. And uh, maybe that stuck with him. I don't know. But uh, and as they fight, Cap decides the, the man is an experienced killer, but is yet unfamiliar with his powers. So Cap, um, even though he he's the emissary is stronger, uh, Cap uh, breaks his foe's leg uh, and then he breaks the other leg and the emissary then marshals his dynamic powers, taking cap by surprise and, and totally changing the situation. The emissary unleashes several fiery blasts. Uh, cap leaps through a hole in the brick wall and seals it with his shield. And the blast directly at the shield flips cap into the river sinking out of sight. Um, I would just say, 
I, I kind of went quickly through that, but that's a heck of a fight scene. Indeed, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it just, uh, I, I, I love seeing Cap like, all right, I need to assess the situation. I'm, I'm, I'm unprepared. I, I'm out here in the open. Let's see. And then he, and then you see, you hear what's going through his mind as he's assessing the situation. And, you know, he, he, he's just such a seasoned pro at this. Right. Um, but then he, he sees that this guy's a demon and like that changes everything. And, um, and he, he realizes he can't run. He can't be out in the open. So he, he splits the difference and, and goes into the building, which then blows up. And like I said, he goes into the to river. Um, then we, we, we flash back to 1939 and, and we're in the Harbor and it's Baron Zemo and Baron Strucker. And again, these, these guys are in their civilian identities, right? They're, they're, they're not who they end up becoming at this point. And they're going over their big plan. And uh, as we heard before at the upcoming big Bundes rally in Madison square garden, there's going to be a bomb that's going to be detonated, killing 20,000 of the, the faithful Nazis. And uh, the barons will place the blame on the communists and the Jews, leading the USA to come to the aid of the Germans, making an unbeatable combination for the upcoming war. But the barons don't know that their plan has been overheard by a dock worker. So also in 1939, we see a, a weak Young Steve Rogers, uh, he's he's working hauling bricks at a construction site, uh, and he's he's been offered a, a phony job by by the mobsters, um, but he refuses to take it. And his foreman tells him to take it easy, but he declines. And on his way home, he passes out, and then he awakens in his apartment, and he's visiting uh, the visiting nurse Emily Costner examines him, and he reveals his bad medical history. So she orders him to take it easy and promises to take a look on him later. And then he goes off to sleep. I, I, I love uh, this, this scene when, when he's in bed and he's being evaluated by the nurse and he, he goes through the litany of all of his maladies, right? I mean, it's, it's everything from partial deafness to rheumatic fever, on and on and on. And then he also says he's a terrible dancer. Yeah, so, I love, yeah. love the sense of humor, right? Indeed. Like, yeah. He, you know, he, he and and then the next thing, too, he says um, and, and he, he challenges her and he says, oh, you know, what are you gonna, who can say? And she goes, I'm a nurse. He goes, OK, slight edge, you know, like <laughs> he's he's got a sense of humor and, and it's yeah. dry. You know, it's yeah. very dry. He's not overly kind of like, you know, trying to make a joke. You know, he's right. just he just got the little zingers and, you know. Yeah. So in the present day. Uh, we go from the younger Cap sleeping in the bed to present-day Cap waking up in a hospital bed. And there's Steve and you know, in, in uh, hospital, I guess, gear, right? And Sharon Carter tells him that um, his shield was so hot, it raised a cloud of steam in the river that led investigators to locate and rescue him. And he tells her about the demon— and then he promises to tell her the rest after he makes a phone call. And there's a nice little, it's a little fun going back and forth between the two of them. And uh, you also get a sense um, because we hadn't seen Sharon prior to this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you also get, get a sense of their history because she, 
just by a few words and his mannerisms, she picks up right away. Oh, demon. Okay. You know, and, and then they have, and she, she has her arm around him, And um, so you can just sense from, from just a few panels here that, you know, they have a very uh, long-standing, serious, uh, romantic history together. And um, and he says it's not the first time he pulled from the river, right? And there's a, uh, I, I would say it's a flashback because it is, but it's also foreshadowing of something we haven't seen yet, uh, of uh, a young Steve in a in a vehicle in in the river. All right, so we go back to 1939, and then the the Nazi named Rolf. Um, hey, do you think do you think the Muppet Rolf was named after this Nazi? Muppets don't tend to like Nazis. Yeah. No? Yeah. Well, okay. no, yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, you're right. I was thinking of the two old guys. But... <laughs> oh, they definitely don't like they Nazis. They definitely don't like Nazis. <laughs> um, so Rolf raises the demon Asmodee, and the demon fills us in on Hell's agenda, which is um, the they're very jealous that the, the creator blessed the human race. And, and demons are now devoted to destroying the humans. And the Madison Square Garden plan is certain to succeed, except for uh, an aberration that he cannot identify. But it's likely of no importance. But we all know it's Steve Rogers. And then we cut to present day, and um, unable to, to reach Dr. Strange by phone, Steve calls Misty Knight, and she reveals that the murdered man from last issue was to speak at an upcoming peace conference, and it sounds familiar to him. And then he asks if he, he could borrow the Doctor Strange doll he saw last issue. Um, and that that ends the... Uh, and I might as well go, bum, 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 because it literally does end with bum, bum, bum. Uh, right. not, not just me, but... I, again, I I like the funny, uh, you know, tit for tat kind of going back and forth between Sharon and Steve here. You know, he grabs her phone and and he's like, "When did you start taking pictures of food?" And she's like, "It's a thing." And he asks Misty, and she goes, "Absolutely, it's a thing." Uh, so a little bit of a commentary on on I think today's times, but um, you know, from a from a man out of today's times, you know. Right. Uh, so I I enjoyed that uh light hardness right uh you know because it can't all be danger and drama you know you got to have these light-hearted moments and i think jms does a a nice job mixing them in yeah yeah there's a there's a great scene uh in this in this uh issue rick that i i think you underplayed uh but it's so brilliant uh and that is when asmodee and rolf are talking about operation garden and what's about to happen, you know, and Asmodee mentions this, this aberration that he senses, and he calls it an infinitesimal aberration that he can neither identify or understand smaller than the smallest grain of sand. Yeah, I was going to mention that, but I can't say the word infinitesimal. <laughs> under, under, un, understood. Yeah, understood. Okay. Uh, but it's great, right? Because of course, we know we, I, we think we know what he's talking about here, you know, and uh, it's it's the under misunderstanding. Did I say that right? 
No. <laughs> You're asking me? No, uh, no, Not yes, even no, close. No, the the misunderstandings of, of you know, you know, underestimating. There it is. Yeah, there it is. Right? <laughs> just playing, yeah, yeah. So you know, just gratuitously underestimating Steve Rogers' potential as this infinitesimal aberration, this smaller than the smallest grain of sand. Never and yet, underestimate Steve Rogers. That's right. And yet, I think it's also uh, a saying, you know, or just implying um, that, you know, we all, even the smallest of the small of, of, of us can can make a change. We can affect change. I feel like we should break out into a song right about now, but I don't know which one would be appropriate. Uh, yeah. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, Rick knows I'm a big fan of uh, 70s on 7 on my Sirius XM. And I hear the Dude, original Dude, I told you, they old. don't pay us. Maybe they it will. It is your Rick. satellite radio. <laughs> Maybe they will, Rick, if they hear, you know? Uh-huh. So, All right, keep going, I, yeah. I love the original song. I can't remember who the heck sings it, but uh, I always want to, like, you know, insert the name of the soda pop into that song but in the original song it's it's not in there right it's 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 the original song um but i hear that at least once a day so i'm glad that we were in a synchronicity there for a second we, we, we've, so, been, moving we've along, been doing this together way too long yeah moving <laughs> along to, to issue five shall we rick uh, absolutely and the solicitation for this one is New information about Captain America's recent attacker, a mysterious figure known only as the Emissary, has Steve Rogers, Misty Knight, and Sharon Carter scrambling to protect a peace rally from being this new foe's next target. But how can masters of physical and mental might defend against the supernatural prowess of an ancient evil? All right, looking at uh, this one, uh, we have... A new colorist, Espen Brutingern, if I'm saying that right. Sounds right uh, to me. Everybody else is uh, the same writer, same penciler, inker, letterer, and editor. Uh, release date, January 3rd, 2024. Cover date, March 2024. Uh, this cover is not by Jesus. It is by uh, Torin Clark. Bob, do you want to take us through the cover? Sure, I'd be happy to, Rick. So uh, what we see here on the cover is, it looks like the facade of a building with, you know, one of those old payphone booths, the Glaston payphone booths. And we mm -hmm. see Steve Rogers standing in one of those booths with uh, the, uh, the transceiver held in his hand. Of course, it's corded, you know, these old booths. And he is looking toward the reader and he's got his, his left hand up, uh, palm palm toward the, the reader and and we see a number of bullets three i think like speeding toward the phone booth in which mm -hmm. steve is standing uh yeah, really beautifully rendered these actually look like actual uh um, bullets uh brass bullets you know uh interesting enough this is not how bullets would actually be fired but whatever you know for the sake of art you know they're rendered as as a, a you know a round of ammunition uh, and then above Cap, above above Steve, we see Cap, and he is uh, from the waist up, and he's leaning toward the reader, and he's got his shield in the right hand, 
and his left hand is reaching out toward the reader and he appears to be like yelling like he's, uh, you know, uh, maybe yelling an order or, or issuing a command of something. And it's a beautifully rendered cap. We, we see the detail in the chain, the chain armor. We see the, uh, the wings on his cowl. I mean, it's a really beautifully and colorfully rendered uh, cap that we see here. Either one of you guys get a Matrix vibe off of this? Yeah, a little bit because of the the bullets, you know, almost like they're Just going in with slow. the hand he on sees the... him in slow motion. Yeah, yeah. And, and the hand up and all, and he's holding the phone. It's almost like you're expecting him to just dematerialize. Mm -hmm. Right, right. That's yeah, a good he, call. Yeah, it, but it does suck you in. It it is. Yes. It's a, it it does what a good cover should do. Right. It it's it's um like how how does Steve get out of that one? Like you know. So uh, you know the very first panel. Uh, you know, we see a, a montage of, of all of these villains that Cap has fought with before. And he's thinking to himself again, I've seen and fought some pretty strange things in my time. And these are some of his, his, his you know, the strangest uh, of, uh, foes that he's fought. Not the, not the normal ones like, you know, say the Red Skull, right? Or, or Batroc the Leaper or, you know, any of these guys, right? These are sort of the off the wall ones like Modoc and, and the Serpent Society and, and uh, um, Baron Blood. Uh, Baron Blood, right, yeah. And he's thinking to himself, I've seen and fought some pretty strange things in my time. Vampires, societies of snake men, a giant head in a flying chair, but none of it prepared me for the Stephen Strange doll. And, and so this, <laughs> this, 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 this story opens with, uh, with Cap and Sharon uh, in Misty Knight's office, and he's gone there to consult with uh, Doctor Strange via that small figure that, that Misty Knight had shown him earlier. And uh, in this meeting, uh, you know, Strange isn't there, but he's, he's projecting himself into this, this figure again. And Strange shows him, uh, Cap that is, 4,527 demonic signals uh, in seconds. Uh, and, and so that Cap can pick out the one that he has seen uh, being carried by the emissary. And, you know, a signal, if you don't know what that is, Rick and, and John, it's a, it's a type of symbol used in magic. It's usually a pictorial representation of a, of a deity or a spirit, such as an angel or a demon. And so he goes through the whole list of them. And it's pretty amazing that Cap can like whiz through these and finally pick out the one. And Strange is able to identify that, that sigil, signal as Asmodee, the demon of wrath that who has bent on destroying mankind since the very inception of the human race. And Strange also points out to him at this point that Asmodee is way too powerful to Cap for Cap to face and uh, square off and expect to win. Cap asks Strange at this time if, if he can help him out, right? Join him in this battle against the demon. But Strange and, and Clea are, are in the middle of an extra-dimensional battle with a bunch of monsters, and so he's a little tied up at the time. So Strange tells Cap to like take this figurine with him so that if Strange uh, figures out something later on, he can get in touch with Cap or, or Cap can reach out to him. So Cap is forced with you know carrying around this small figurine of, of Doctor Strange, at least for the time being, and now we know what those those pouches are for. Well, he's he's not carrying around the whole figure though, right? Right, just the head. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, he snaps off the head because he's like, I don't have enough space for it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's like, snap off the head. <laughs> so uh, we go back in time, Rick. So we're back in February twentieth, nineteen thirty-nine, uh, and this was a little bit confusing to me. I have to, I have to say because we see uh, Mr. Mueller 
who was the old superintendent of, of Cap's apartment um, when, he, when he lived with his mom. Uh, the Mr. Mueller that was able to find this apartment, uh, thanks to Arnie Roth, for uh, uh, the Cap to, to move in uh, his new place. And so Mr. Mueller shows up and he tells Steve that he came to warn him. So we learned that Mueller had, in, uh, uh, had uh, infiltrated a Nazi rally and was able to take photos of Baron Strucker and Zemo uh, together before he was caught. Uh, and a Bundist uh, goon pursued Mueller and he was eventually beaten up, but just as he was about ready to you know, get beaten into submission and possibly even killed, he, he kicks out at this, uh, this Bundist guy and knocks him in front of a speeding car and, and manages to escape with his life. And so now he's come to Steve uh, and he's, he's there to tell him that something is going to happen that night. And so Steve knows that he's got to reach back out to Meyer Lansky and let him know what's going on. So, you know, we're in the, we're back to the present day now and we're outside of that peace conference and Misty, Misty Knight is there and she's meeting with the conference organizer and she's suggesting very strongly, in fact, that they cancel the event because two people now that are connected with the conference have been, have been murdered. But the organizer, uh, being as passionate as, uh, as, as she is, cites the importance of the event and, and says, we're not going to quit. We're not going to back down. Uh, and at that point, we see that the emissary is watching. He's disguised as uh, one of the maintenance worker. And we can tell by the look on the maintenance worker's face that the, emiss uh, the emissary is, uh, is quite pleased with the organizer's plan to press ahead with the conference, because that is precisely what they want. So... Um, Prompted by the, by the Dr. Strange figurine head, uh, Cap asked Sharon to help him protect the conference. But before we get into that, we go back to 1939 and we, we now see Zemo and Strucker outside of Madison Square Garden. And they're there basically inspecting uh, the progress of the plan. And the plan of course is to, is to detonate a bomb underneath the Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden, killing uh, uh, some if not all of the 20,000 Bundists that are there in attendance. Uh, Steve Rogers is also there and he's, uh, he's spying on them from the bushes, but he's, he's spotted by one of the Bundists, uh, one of the guys in fact that he had run into in the, uh, in the park incident uh, in issue number two, but this time uh, the guy has had a change of heart. Like he didn't sign up for mass murder. And he, he realizes because he's the guy we saw in the previous issue uh, that had overheard the plan. And so he goes up to Steve and he tells him uh, what the barons are planning. And then the man is shot by Strucker and Steve uh, begins to run for his life pursued by the Nazis. And he makes it to a phone booth, which is what we see on the cover of this issue. Um, uh, and that gets riddled with bullets. So he barely escapes that trap before he dives into the sewer, eventually making it to Lansky's headquarters where he tells the mob boss what's about to happen. So at that point, Lansky organizes his men to head over to the garden. Um, well, uh, and of course, you know, he wants to leave Steve behind because Steve is, you know, he's been shot at, he's been beaten. Uh, he had to swim through a sewer to get there. He's exhausted, he's sick, uh, but Steve insists on being taken along with Lansky's men. And so when the two groups get together, the Bundist and Lansky's organized uh, crime squad, uh, a riot ensues. And now we jump back to uh, the present day outside that peace conference and Cap has arrived uh, and, and Sharon is there and she's got her shield folks surrounding the building, watching out for bad guys. Cap is then called inside, he goes inside and then suddenly the whole build, building is sealed off. All the windows, all the doors, everything is completely sealed as if by some form of magic. 
and the emissary is inside as well. And he steps to the podium and announces to the crowd that everyone in there will soon be dead. And Cap steps forward at this point to challenge him. Uh, and so what we see is really two errors of Steve Rogers in this final page leaping into action. On the left side of the page, we see two panels that show Cap with a shield ready to square off against the emissary. And on the right side, we see two panels, Steve armed with a baseball bat ready to charge into a melee with the Bundes outside of Madison Square Garden. Love it. Absolutely love it. You know, I, I, I really like that that scene where Steve in his Captain America uniform, but he has his mask down. He's in the park. He's sitting on the bench and he's there with Sharon. And they're just kind of going back and forth talking. And then the little Stephen Strange doll head keeps interrupting. And it has like commentary coming from the pouch, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they're like, shut up, (laughs) shut up, Strange. You know, I just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, some, I, I like the humor. You know, I got to tell you this, it was a little, there was a part of this, this particular issue and, and it's, you know, it's an artifact of the change in the, in the art team. Uh, you know, when Mr. Mueller shows up, he looks completely different, at least to me, than he had uh, the way he was previously rendered in like the first couple issues where he looked a little bit pudgier, uh, maybe a little bit uh, follically challenged. Uh, and, and, and in this issue, he's a lot thinner. Uh, he's got a nice head of hair. And so I was a little confused, like, who is this guy all of a sudden? He's got the same name as the other guy. And then, of course, you know, light dawned on Marblehead, and I figured it out. But uh, but certainly because Asmodee possessed him, right? Is that why? No, no. This is the Mr. Mueller, his old superintendent. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought it was a completely different guy. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's the same guy. So it's just, you know, it's the impact that a different artistic team can have, you know, can, um, uh, for better or worse can inject a little confusion, at least for me anyway. All right, let's get to number six. We're going to finish up this story. And, uh, the solicitation for this one is Captain America versus the emissary. It's a fight to the death as Captain America races to take down the emissary before he destroys a peace rally and Cap himself. But when physical might proves futile against the supernatural, will an assist from Doctor Strange be enough to turn the tide? Find out in Beast. Now, this one, uh, this one has uh, La Medina, the penciler, he, he's inking, but he, uh, he gets a little assist from uh, Bellardino Bravo. And uh, but the rest of the team is still the same uh, writer, colorist, letterer and editor. Release date was February 7th, 2024. So not too long ago. Cover date of April 2024. What? That's the future. How are we reading a comic (laughs) from the future? I don't understand. Maybe we'll have to use Bob's logic. Uh, The cover on this one, Turin Clark and. uh, uh, You know what, John? You're taking issue six. Why don't you take us through the cover? All right. So here on the cover, you've got a great action shot of Captain America right there, center, throwing his shield. But his shield's a little different this time. It's got something there on the center sitting over the star. And behind Captain America, you see the somewhat misty-looking appearance of Dr. Strange carrying his, you know, his hands in the making sigils. And there's a sigil underneath 
cap there on the cover as well. So uh, definitely got a, a combination of, of magic and Cap's super soldiering. All right. So you know what? I'm going to say, Bob, look out because you do an excellent job doing the covers. <laughs> okay. I consider myself warned. <laughs> I'm trying my best on, on my audition. On, man. <laughs> on notice. I am on notice. All right, so we start off the issue. We're back in February of 1939 there at Madison Square Garden, and we are right in the thick of it. Steve Rogers has joined the hoods in fighting the American Bundists in order to stop the bomb detonating that would kill them all. Then you flip the page and you get to the very aptly named Simon Convention Center. And Captain America in the present day is trapped they're in the center with the emissary, otherwise known as serial killer Henry Cavanaugh, possessed by the demon Asmodee, as he announces to the peace conference his intention to kill them all, picking right up where we were. Bounce back to 1939, and we've got Steve and the gangsters locate the truck containing the bomb, but it is armored and they can't break in. Steve points out that he is small enough to crawl in through the window and the keys are in the ignition. Convenient. The window is broken and Steve drives off with the truck. As the bomb starts to detonate, Steve drives the truck into the river and swims away, thinking of his mother, and then the bomb goes off. Back to present day, Misty Knight and Sharon Carter manage to drill through the barrier sealing off the center. Cap tells them to evacuate the center taking the conference members to safety while he battles the emissary. Cap barely holds his own against the demon's powers until Dr. Str Dr. Strange, speaking through the doll figurine, in Cap's pocket, comes up with a solution. After a few minutes, Strange places the Eye of Agamotto on Cap's shield, just like we saw on the cover, giving him the power needed to defeat his enemy. Cap continues hitting the emissary until Asmodee is exorcised from Kavanaugh, who then collapses. Back to 1939, Steve awakens in the hospital. The doctor informs him that his injuries placed alongside his litany of health problems means that he has at most five years to live. Across the street is a Nazi possessed by Asmodee who draws a bead on Steve with a sniper rifle. Asmodee stops him, saying that killing Steve now would only make him a martyr. Rather, he should die an invalid in bitter agony over the course of the next five years. But then Dr. Erskine comes along. Back to the present day, Steve's renovation of the apartment building is finally complete. Steve offers Sung Kim the job of manager but Sung turns down the offer, explaining that the family has plans to move to Seattle. After the goodbyes are over. That was a surprise to me. Like, I, I thought he was going to take it. Right? I, it. It was a huge surprise to me until we get to what happens next. So after the goodbyes are over, Mrs. Rosen comes and tells, uh, tells Steve the real reason that the Kims left, suggesting that Steve take a look at the street where the Kims parked their van. 
Steve goes over and discovers the wall is covered with swastikas and Nazi slogans. As Steve whitewashes the wall, he muses that things happen in cycles. And if the Nazis ever come back, he'll be there and he'll be ready for them. Hmm. Great ending. Uh, would you guys be okay if I, if I read it? I would be upset if you didn't, Rick. I, I think that's absolutely in keeping, yes. Because, you know, coming full circle, JMS did a nice job, you know, starting with inner monologue of Steve and then I think ending here. The arc of history is born in moments that are rarely recognized for what they are. Tides that shape the world, define generations, and, for some reason, always seem to come in cycles. On one side are those who have allied themselves with a power that shares their hate. On the other side, those who have sworn to never again let the beast straddle the world on legs of steel and fire. We didn't end the war with Germany because we decided to stop fighting Nazis. We stopped because we ran out of Nazis to fight. They ditched their uniforms and ran from the fetal of battle. So if anyone else ever wants to put those uniforms on again and step back onto the battlefield, well, I'll be waiting for them. That's strong stuff. That's good stuff. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, guys, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm so glad we went through this. I, it, it's such a, it's such a good story on so many levels. Uh, I, I think the writing on this was um, not to say that, you know, previous stories didn't have great writing as well, but this one was simple. It, it just, it was very, very on a level. It was just very, uh, very simple story, but it, it tied together so many elements that I thought were, were really important. And, you know, mostly focusing on Steve Rogers as opposed to Captain America and, you know, seeing him, what, what created the hero. Right. Um, I, I, I like the story on so many levels, but I'll shut up and I want to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah. Well, uh, I like to think of it as an, it's like an origin of an origin story, number one, right? Because, you know, we know the origin story of Captain America, but this is almost the origin of that origin story. How Cap got to that point where he was so sick uh, and on death's door when Erskine found him. So number one, that's great. And you know, to Rick, I'm a sucker for real world history. And, and I, love, I love how JMS has woven so much actual real world history in real world uh, persons into the story. My only regret is he didn't, uh, you know, there was a guy that night at the, uh, at the Bund uh, um, rally at Madison Square Garden, a guy by the name of Isidore Greenbaum. Uh, maybe you never heard of Isidore, but he, he was a Jewish man who rushed the stage uh, in order to stop that event. And he had to be rescued by police after he was beaten and stripped by the Bundes stormtroopers. But mm. that's real courage right there, right? I mean, that's not that's not a fictional character. That That's a real dude who yeah. like, was taking it to the bad guys. That Fritz Julius uh, Kuhn, who was in fact, he, he's in the comics, but he was the real head of the Bund up there speaking in, in Isidore, like wasn't going to let it stand. So I love that real history 
one has been used, but I hope it like it encourages people, especially young people, to then dig a bit deeper into that real world history and, and learn it. You know, first of all, thank you for bringing Isabel's name up, because that is a real hero right there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm glad we're recognizing that person. And um, yeah, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that because those types of things can get lost in history. Yeah. I I do. I, I want to go back to what you said uh, that, you know, we, we, we see that Erskine, Steve was on death's door when he went, went to Erskine and, and then you said like, you know, and that, and that's great. I didn't like that part. I didn't really? like that part really? because in my mind, it comes into question Steve's willingness to sac potentially sacrifice himself for, for this experiment because that to me was always so brave. Mm -hmm. But if you if you if you have a a terminal illness and you're going to be dying anyway and you know you you don't have as much to lose and that was the first thing that came to my mind was like mm. okay it's it's it almost taints his his uh sacrifice and his um braveness because you know he was going to be dying anyway mm. what do you think john um that that's that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, um, and I see your point. The only thing I'll add that just comes off the top of my head is JMS is going to be continuing with some of these themes. You know, the solicitations for issue seven have already said as much, so we may end up going back to revisit this, and who knows. Mm -hmm. um, Steve has shown even in these six issues and in other previous stories of his how much he was an overcomer before he was Captain America and beaten significant odds. Again, the as as Robert called it, the the litany of illnesses that he had. Um, it, I love the fact that he calls you Robert. <laughs> Well, I looked up and saw his name on the screen. <laughs> Who is that guy? Oh, that's Bob. Uh -oh. Bob, you're anyway. in trouble. <laughs> you're getting called Robert. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, we may end up coming back to this and finding out, you know what? He was given five years to live. Maybe he already beat those odds before he got to Erskine. Maybe not. Maybe that's just me being hopeful. But I totally see where you're coming from. I do too. I, I don't think, but I, you know, here's the thing with Steve. I don't think, not that I think he's irrational or a Pollyanna, but like, uh, like none of this comes as a surprise to him, right? He's had these illnesses before. Uh, and we see the way that he reacted to the nurse who, who gave him all these instructions and told him, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You, you got to stay in bed. You got to do this. You got to do that. He, he, he is, He's an he's an optimist, right? And I think even though the doctor is telling him, well, "You've got you know five years to live," I don't think he accepts that. Hmm. I don't think he's the sort okay. of person who who believes it um, uh, and thinks that there is a way um, with enough persistence and determination and moxie, which was uh, you know a term used in the title of I think book five, right? Um, that there's a way out of this. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I just don't think that message of what the doc is saying is, is really resonating with Steve because I just don't think it's in his nature. I like that. I'll go with that. I think your answer is so much better than mine. <laughs> um, all right. So any other thoughts before we get into favorite panel and all that kind of stuff? Any, any other thoughts about this story? I'll, I'll add that the, upon reading the first issue, the first time I was over the moon with it, absolutely loved it. As I started getting more and more into the issues on the first readings, I kept getting this feeling. It's like, I like occult stuff, stories about demons, read Ghost Rider, sure, all that stuff. And I love Cap, but this feels like somebody served me a plate of Brussels sprouts and Reese's peanut butter cups smashed together. And I'm like, I like each one, but I don't <laughs> want them on the same plate. Ah, okay. okay. But, but it's, this is, and this is true of a lot of some of my favorite story arcs and, and comic series. This benefited so much from a revisit. So one of the reasons why I really appreciate you inviting me to come on, because I don't know if I would have gone back and reread, you know, all of everything together, especially not this soon. But a lot of other things just came out to me and I'm like, wow, this is really great stuff. I loved pretty much every bit of the flashback stuff. Mm -hmm. And Rick, something you said in the course of our discussion tonight is really what just, I mean, encapsulates it so well. And that is seeing Steve Rogers in these flashback sequences and how he's standing up and what he's doing communicates you don't have to be a superhero. You don't have to be in the, you know, stars and stripes on a uniform. You don't have to have a super soldier serum. You know, these are some things you can do as average human being, or maybe even below average human mm -hmm. being in terms of health, you can get out there and still make a stand. And I appreciate Bob, what you brought up about, uh, remind me of the name, please. Uh, Isadora Greenbaum. Isadora Greenbaum, because that's somebody who did just that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think, you know, it would be interesting talking with JMS next week and just asking about, you know, what is the theme? What is the what what is the message that he's trying to get to 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 the readers? Um, is there something overall that he wants to 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 you know uh, to talk about? And and frankly, I also want to know. You know, he's been out of comics for a while. What was it that drove him back to comics? And why did he pick Captain America, you know, of all characters? And uh, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to can't wait to chat with him about that. All right. So let's get to uh, we're going to do favorite panel, uh, T-shirt worthy and time capsule. So, uh, John, you being our guest, you get to go first. What What is your favorite panel of these six issues? All right. So um, I, thank you for letting me go first. I actually listed several just in case you guys took mine away. <laughs> all right. Backup, um, backup all plans. Right. I like that. But if I get to pick my absolute favorite, I'm going to cheat just a little bit 
because I'm going to make it the combination of two panels, and that is where the young ladies are dousing the toilet leavings at the bottom of the page, and you flip the page and you see the brown shirts, as Bob said, truly becoming brown shirts. Indeed, that indeed. was fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Mm. I guess so. I mean, I really don't. I really don't give a shit. Um, Bob, Bob, what was uh, what was your he favorite shot? He took it. So, Rick, I, I've already hinted at this. It is uh, issue two, page fifteen, center left panel. Steve laying in bed, looking up at his dad's medals in the shadow box hanging on his yes. wall. Yes, to me, very it, nice. It resonates personally with me. Um, because I, I made a shadow box of my dad's medals. Unfortunately, I didn't get it. He gave it to uh, one of my one of my my nephews, uh, or actually one of my great nephews, uh, one of his grandsons. And so uh, I was a little upset at first, but then I felt I felt pretty good about it because uh, that young man will look at that for years, and he was close to his uh, his great grandfather. So I'm happy it went to a good home. But I understand the connection of of having that, and so seeing that that image of Steve, number one. Uh, having that connection with his dad uh, means a lot. Um, but the other thing is we've talked about this a lot. And we particularly talked about it uh, in volume uh, volume seven, right? And, and Steve's relationship with his father and the way that his father uh, has been portrayed mm, in some yeah. runs. And so I, I like this as a more wholesome representation of Mr. Mueller, who knew his dad in the younger days, um, uh, and, and Mr. Mueller, who, who emigrated from Germany, he said in that scene uh, uh, that he was afraid that Steve's father would would sort of look down at him or look askance at him because he was German, uh, and Steve's father had had fought in, in World War One, uh, but that was never the case. Um, that his father was always open minded and treated him as a friend. And so I, I like that about this panel. That all speaks to me in that one panel. Very nice. It's always it's always great when there's something that can touch us on a personal level. Uh which yeah. probably explains why why John picked uh, the, the the poopy one. Um all right. <laughs> how so about, how I, about you Rick? I'm gonna go with um my favorite panel. Actually, I'm going to go. I'll go with my favorite panel. I'll get there. But my favorite page is, uh, is issue two, page two, and this is the the one where he's he's in the audience for the first time in the in the park at the Boond rally, and it's he's 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 there, and there's these two big guys come up to him. And they're like, you know, why are you talking like that? And he just kind of smiles at him and goes, let me guess, this is your first time in Brooklyn. And, <laughs> and then, uh, and then he is like, you better go. Yeah. Go home crawling to your mother. And he goes, now that was your, was your mistake. And he starts rolling up his sleeve. And then, you know, you see him walking and the old man says to him, you know, uh, it looks like he's been in a fight. Well, you see the other guys. And then, you know, then he says, I don't think it's going for you as well as you think it is. Give me time. And you see that confident, you know, like the determination on his face. Love this whole page. Love this mm -hmm. whole page for the humor, for 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 the sentimental uh, sentimentality of it, for for the um, just all the different parts of Steve Rogers that I love. But 
if I got to pick a favorite panel, I'm going to go with the one where he's rolling up his sleeve and he says, see, that was your mistake. And he's looking, not even looking at them in the eye. He's just looking down at his arm as he's rolling up his sleeve. He knows he's going to get his ass kicked. <laughs> right. He, he, he knows. Yeah. He does. He's not under any kind of, you know, false bravado here. Yeah. Right. But it's, you just disrespect, you just disrespectfully talked about my mom. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I love that panel. Indeed. Yeah. That's a great panel. It says all you need to know about Steve. Exactly. Yeah. All right. How about, it? How about a t-shirt, Rick? Oh, oh, okay. We'll go with me. Sure. Um, t-shirt yeah. worthy. I, again, I, I'm going to go with some humor. I'm going to go with some humor because I love this. Um, we're going to go with issue five. And I'm going to go with page uh, one. And that's the one, uh, Bob, were you describing? And like the first panel uh, had all the, the weird, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. villains. Yeah. And then underneath that were two panels where Cap is talking to the figurine. And it says, doll. Figure. Doll. Avatar. <laughs> doll astral projection range extender and you just you're just seeing their two faces yeah right right and i just want to take that panel right there uh of that exchange between the two of them and i want to put it right here on my chest yeah and and see how many people raise their eyebrows when they're trying to read like what the hell is going on on your shirt and i'm <laughs> yeah. just gonna have a little slight laughter to myself i love it i love uh, it uh uh all right, Bob, you, what, what are you putting on a, a yeah, t-shirt? You know, I'm going with the cover of issue number one, Rick, mm. uh, because I, I love, I, I love the juxtaposition here of, of, of the young Steve Rogers, all bruised and beaten and bloody, his shirt, you know, untucked, his shirt torn. And then above him looming is that, is that, uh, you know, waist up uh, image of cap with his shield at the ready and, and he's getting ready, uh, cocking back his left hand, ready to, 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 to punch. Uh, and I think just having that, you know, even without the buildings, just having those two figures, you know, it sends a message, right? That uh, one, of course, it's, it's, it's Steve Rogers and, and Captain America. But one is it's, there's a hero in all of us, right? Every, every young boy, young girl who's, who's been beaten and pushed aside, there's a hero waiting in everybody. Uh, so I got to have that on the shirt uh, and wear it proudly. I like it. And how about you, John? What are you putting on a t-shirt? So for the shirt that I want, uh, mine comes also from issue five, except instead of the very beginning, mine is the very last page where you have Cap and Steve split right down the middle, mm. each leaping into battle. I want a button-up George Perez-style shirt with <laughs> Cap on one side, Steve on the other, you know, just leaping right out at you. Nice. All right. We're going to extend the rules a little bit here for you. Like we did say t-shirt worthy, not Hawaiian shirt worthy, but that's okay. Hey. We'll, we'll, we'll extend it <laughs> as your guest. And we know you don't listen to the show, so you don't know any better. All right. Uh, listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm an old man and a big, big George Perez cosplayer signing in hawaiian shirts uh very nice very <laughs> nice all right john uh you go first for time capsule what are you putting in 
the capsule? Uh, for the time capsule, to me, it's got to be the final page of issue six. Mm. Uh, that page that you read, um, that is something I believe is a message to stand for all time, but is also a great page to commemorate this point in time where we are um, in the country, in the world, as nationalism and fascism seem to be on the rise all over the place. You always have to be ready and waiting to fight it when it comes. Well said. Well said. Bob, how about you? What's going on in your time capsule? You know, I, I, I'm going with the word moxie, Rick, from the title of issue five, Sigils, Moxie, and Chop Demon Liver. And you know why? Because, Rick, I got- you got I moxie, got, see? I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know what that word means, right? I, I remember growing up drinking moxie. Right. My mom uh, loved Moxie, always had it in the fridge. It used to be produced in Lowell, Massachusetts, where I lived. It's the oldest soda in the United States, having been produced since 1884, Rick. It's the state soft drink of Maine. But in American English, it has come to mean courage, determination, persistence. And that's that's how you use that. So uh, I don't think anybody really much drinks it anymore, except in Maine, probably in, in northern, in maybe northern New England. But uh, back in the 30s, it was it was a big deal. Soda, uh, one of the one of the few on the market at the time, and so hence that's where we get the we get in uh, get that term in the English language because of its popularity during that time frame. Very cool. All right, we got a little moxie there. Yeah. And what about you, my friend? Well, Bob, I'm glad you asked. I am going to go with, and I almost, I almost yelled at John uh, because when he said the final uh, page, you'll get, you'll get used to it, John. <laughs> oh, trust me, I was being yelled at years ago. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't make me get out the metal folding. No, chair, not John. the metal folding chair. Oh, <laughs> I worked for him for one day, and I had to sit in that chair. <laughs> Did you work for me for a day? I don't know. I worked that. for you was for like a one day. I covered because all your employees were like gone and couldn't come in and you had to go away too. So it's like, can you please just come man the cash register? Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How desperate could I have been? Pretty, pretty desperate. <laughs> pretty desperate. Was this was but, this towards the end? This this was towards the end, and I, I was got, probably flying to New Jersey. Yeah, I my uh, my comic collection expanded greatly that day. Though, thank God, you never <laughs> reviewed the tapes. <laughs> you know, I still have the videotapes. Oh no! <laughs> um, no, last page of issue one. Oh. So, uh, when it's the big reveal of the, the the Nazi Bund here in New York. And I I think that's going in the time capsule because one, it it certainly depicts a certain time in history. Uh and it is something worth capturing, uh, not something to celebrate, but as they say, uh, you know, history, you know, we repeated it, you know, we're, we're doomed to repeat it if, if we don't pay attention to it and learn from it. Right. So, um, 
and I think this was an eye opener. I, I think there's plenty of people who were reading this story going, oh, JMS just made this up to, 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 you know, hammer home a point, you know, and, uh, and, you know, uh, but no, it, it actually was something that happened. It was something that happened in our in time history. So it's going in my time caps. Nice. Good choice, Rick. Yeah. Yes. Well, John, I got to say, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we always enjoy having you on the show and uh, hearing your real voice, not, not some uh, French or German accent, uh, but we love those too. So uh, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was, oh, it's thank always a pleasure to wrap and cap with you. It, it thank is. you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I was going to say, you're, you're, I mean, you're a real treat to be around, John. So I hope oh. we can have you back sometime. Thank you. Even when he calls you Robert? Even when he calls me Robert, I will take it. <laughs> that yeah. was one time. <laughs> <laughs> and Batrock would never call you Robert. Uh, <laughs> my mother called me Robert once. <laughs> once. Once. No one else gets that gay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right bob let's uh let's come back next week and talk to jay michael straczynski i i can't wait i have so many questions for him and uh looking forward to to having him on the show yeah that's going to be a great great conversation all right uh thanks everybody for listening he's bob lucius i'm rick verbonis and you have been listening to another episode of the captain america comic book fans podcast Thank you.